Okay, so we are going through the Gospel of Luke, one section at a time. We're plugging along one pericope at a time. And this morning, we are just covering three verses, which is one Jesus saying, one short little teaching of Jesus on hypocrisy. And I want to give us a few heads up before we jump into the, the t- Jesus teaching. First heads up is, you know, sometimes in those sermons where preachers will like give a long introduction before you get to the Bible, it's a, it's a long buildup. You have to put the text in the context. That's like a classic preacher thing to say. We have to put the text in the context and it takes 10 minutes to do. This is one of those sermons. So it's going to be a long introduction before we get to the Jesus teaching. And then a, a second heads is up is, you know those sermons where preachers will read a lot of quotations from books that they think are really important, but actually they're kind of boring, but the preacher thinks they're really fun. So it would be nice if the crowd like amuses the preacher by going, wow, those are nice quotes. This is one of those sermons. So everyone be very excited about all the quotes I put together, even if you're just humoring me. It would be very Christian of you, okay? And then the third, uh, the third heads is up is, you know those sermons where the, just, the preaching is so good that tongues of fire come down on someone and they're slain in the spirit and they fall out of their chair? This is one of those sermons. So it's just a heads up. Judah, <laughs> Judah, heads up. <laughs> the tongues of fire are going to hit someone, so just everyone be ready for that, Okay. Not George, that would be too much. <laughs> that would be too much, George. <laughs> yes. You'd be in a coma, yeah, which is the only other excuse for missing church. Very good. So, okay, so here we go. We're going to put the text in the context before we read from the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 12 through Luke 13, 9. So all of chapter 12 and the first nine uh, verses of chapter 13 are 12 teachings of Jesus. It's 12 sayings of Jesus. So it's not stories of Jesus. Like last week we saw Jesus go to a dinner party and get in a fight with the Pharisees. And sometimes lepers will come up to Jesus and he'll heal them. Or sometimes he'll cast out demons into pigs. Those are stories of Jesus in which they are teaching. But this whole chapter, all of Luke 12 and then the beginning of 13 are just 12 teachings of Jesus. And so these are the 12 teachings. We don't have to read them all, but it's on hypocrisy. Don't fear the world. Acknowledge Christ before men. Parable of the rich fool. Parable of the barren fig tree. And these are 12 teachings of Jesus that most scholars would agree are sayings that Jesus would give over and 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 over again. Every time he would go to a new town or new people would come up, he would, say, he would have these same set teachings and little parables he would give. So then Luke, in the middle of his gospel, Luke kind of abstracts these 12 teachings of Jesus and he puts them all together in the middle of his gospel. And so this morning, we're just going to look at one. We're going to look at the first teaching, which is on hypocrisy. But these 12 teachings of Jesus in the middle of Luke do have a common theme. And I bet you're asking, what is the common theme behind these 12 teachings? Good question. Very good question. What is the common theme? The common theme is this. Don't forget, one day, a homeless Jewish peasant is going to rip the veil between heaven and earth, flood the earth with angels, and restore everything, so live accordingly. There's something we always forget, like we misplace our phone or our keys, or I always forget to respond to email, and this is one of the things we always forget. One day, a homeless Jewish peasant is going to rip the veil between heaven and earth. Angels are going to flood the earth. There are going to be seraphim next to puppies. There's going to be cherubim next to turkeys. Heaven and earth are going to overlap, and we are going to walk around on a restored or earth with a homeless Jewish peasant who is king of everything. That is really going to happen. So get every part of your life in line with that truth. That is the truth behind these 12 teachings. One day that is actually going to happen. Death, everything death has touched is going to be restored. So get every part of your life in line with that truth. Get your hypocrisy in line, get your money in line, get your family in line, get your love in line, get what you fear in line with the fact that one day a homeless Jewish peasant is actually going to reunite heaven and earth and restore everything. That's what's behind these 12 teachings of Jesus. Okay, so now 
I, I want to I point out before we go on, there are two ways that we as Christians can be really imbalanced. We can, throw out, we can be imbalanced one way where we say, you know what, it is important to get every part of our life in line getting all of our hypocrisy and all of our idols and all of our family and all of our money in line. But I'm like really a little embarrassed about this idea that, you know, this thing we keep saying, that one day a crucified Jew is going to flood the earth with angels and restore heaven and earth. That's a little embarrassing, but I really like the idea of getting everything, you know, getting our social orders in line. And that's an imbalance Christians can fall into. And that is something that these 12 chapters are, are militating against. So, as an example of kind of that imbalance, this is a quote from the Screwtape Letters. This is one of the quotes that I would like you to be like, oh, that's a really good quote. This is a quote from the, <laughs> I haven't read it yet, after I read it, everybody. <laughs> now you're just mocking me. Um, and I'm bald, I'll send bears after you. No, okay. The Screwtape Letters. Does everyone know how the Screwtape Letters work? This is a book by C.S. Lewis. And the screw tape letters is it's pretend it's one demon. It's a senior demon writing to a, uh, like a minor demon. And the senior demon is giving advice on how to tempt humans and how to trick humans into imbalance. And this is what Lewis says that how, how demons try to trick us in chapter seven. Whatever social cause your human adopts, your main task will be the same. Let your human begin to think of that cause as part of his religion. Then, under the influence of a partisan spirit, let him come to regard that cause as the most important part of his religion, whether it be patriotism or pacifism, capitalism or socialism. Then, quietly and gradually, nurse him onto the stage at which the religion merely becomes a part of the cause. Christianity will be valued chiefly because of the excellent arguments it can, be, it can provide for the British war efforts or for isolationism. Once you have made the world an end and faith a means, you have almost won your man. And it makes very little difference what kind of worldly end he is pursuing, provided that meetings, pamphlets, policies, and movements matter more to him than prayer and sacraments, he is yours. I could show you a pretty cage full of that lot down here, your affectionate Uncle Screwtape. When we become so uh, in, excited and, and nervous and, and really engaged in social policies, whatever they are, and then Christianity just becomes like a helpful set of arguments to really get what we're really excited about, which is fixing our earth, that is what Lewis would say a demonic distortion. And uh, does anyone know who this is? Katie? Van Harnack. Very good. Church points. Adolf Van Harnack. He was a, uh, he was a theologian who I think f- like fell into this imbalance officially. This is what Van Harnack says. That the earth in its course stood still, that a she-ass spoke. You didn't think you would hear that word at church today. That a she-ass spoke, that a storm was quieted by a word, we do not believe and we shall never believe again. What is Christianity then? It is a belief in the universal fatherhood of God, the universal brotherhood of man, the need to care for the outsider, the widow, the orphan. The core of Christian teaching is the prospect of a cooperative social order. I think that is an official theologian falling into the imbalance of saying what really matters is getting everything in order, lining up all your life. But the kind of embarrassing belief that one day a crucified Jewish peasant is going to restore everything, that's not really important. It just gives us helpful arguments for getting everything in order. Now, there is an equal and opposite error to fall into on the other side where you can say all that matters is one day being on Jesus' team and actually taking care of people, actually loving the widow or the orphan or the outsider and actually being a person of character doesn't really matter. All that matters is one day Jesus is going to come back and you need to be on his side. So here's another quote from the Screwtape Letters. This is chapter 3. This is, again, a demon writing to a demon about how to influence humans. Keep in mind, the, keep his mind, keep your human's mind on the inner life. 
At present, he thinks his conversion is about something inside him, and his salvation is only about some future date. Keep it that way. Keep his attention chiefly turned to the states of his own mind and off the elementary duties of decency, kindness, and charity. Keep him concerned with advanced spiritual duties. I have some patients of my own so well in hand that they can be turned in a moment's notice from impassioned prayer or rigorous theological thought to beating or insulting their real wife or son without a question or qualm. And they don't see the hypocrisy, which is so painfully obvious to everyone else, because they preach to themselves the importance of saving the soul and praying for the soul. Remember the elder brother in the enemy's story, your affectionate Uncle Screwtape. There is a way to be so imbalanced to say, all that matters is one day Jesus is going to come back and I got to be on his team. And it doesn't matter if I'm an actual jerk to the people around me or I care about the people around me. I just have to be on his team when he comes back. That is the opposite imbalance. And so here is a, um, I think, Christian who maybe fell into the ba- that imbalance. Does anyone know who that is? That is, very good, church points. Very good, Kevin. Billy Sunday. That's, I give out church points. They mean nothing. They mean nothing. You can't redeem them in heaven. But... Uh, <laughs> Billy Sunday. He was the Billy Graham before Billy Graham. And um, I think he did a lot of great evangelism, a lot of great crusades. I'm not throwing everything under the bus, but he, um, he, he was a professional baseball player before he was an evangelist. And so he would go out on stage in his baseball uniform and with a bat, and he would, he would like slide out onto the stage and people would go crazy. I don't know, uh, that was entertainment, I guess. But he was an evangelist, and this is what he would say in his crusades. The devil called me out, but Jesus called me safe. The only question worth asking, the only thing you need an answer to is are you safe or out? And and it's a way of reducing all of Christianity. It doesn't really matter whether you develop piety. It doesn't matter whether you love your neighbor. It doesn't matter about getting all of your life in order. The only thing that matters is in the future, does Jesus call you safe or does the devil call you out? I think that is an official way of falling into an imbalance. And all of Luke 12, all of these sayings of Jesus are designed to remind us one day Jesus is going to come back, reunite heaven and earth, there will be a judgment, angels are going to flood human earth, and being with him matters, and getting every part of your life in line with that future matters. All of Luke 12 is causing us to be the balanced Christians. Now, I know you are just drowning in all these great great quotes I've put together. Oh, here's a, so Van Harnack is saying, here is what's important, the future kingdom is silly. Billy Sunday is saying, the here and now will pass, but the future kingdom is all that matters. They're both imbalanced, and in the middle here, we have the balance from your boy, N.T. Wright. So here's, here's our quote. This is our last quote for a while. Everyone's still on board with me? <laughs> wow, thank you, Greg. <laughs> wow. <laughs> here's our quote from N.T. Wright. The point of the resurrection is that the present bodily life is not valueless just because it will die. What you do with your body in the present matters because God has a great future in store for it. What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself, will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present a little less beastly and a little more bearable until the day when we leave it all behind. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom, which will one day come crashing in like symbols at the end of a symphony. All of Luke 12 is trying to get us to live in the balanced middle of saying what matters is being with Jesus when he comes back and I want to get all of my life, whether I'm preaching, praying, singing, or sewing, I want to get all of it in line with Jesus' future return. That's, that's what all of Luke 12 is about. And so really, this sermon right now is just getting hypocrisy in line, but this is a 12 
week series. It's not a series that like the preaching staff invented. This is a series in the Bible of just 12 parts of your life that you need to get in line for the eventual return of a crucified Jew who's going to run, run everything. It's a 12-week sermon series on that. So here's what we're going to do this morning. That was the long introduction. That's putting the text in the context. Now, here's what we're going to do. One, we're going to read the text and summarize Jesus's point about hypocrisy. Then two, we're going to identify common forms of contemporary hypocrisy. Then three, we're going to discuss helpful medicines for hypocrisy. Everyone on board? Very good. Okay. No one in the, Judah? Slain in the spirit yet? No? Okay. <laughs> okay. Here we go. Luke 12, 1 through 3. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. This is the word of God for the people of God. So, like I said, this is probably a saying that Jesus would give. It's a pithy, summarized saying that he would give all the time. And so Luke remembers the saying or he had notes of it and he writes it down as the first example of something you need to get in line before Jesus returns or to be in line with the fact that Jesus will return. And so here are some things we can say about this text as we move to summarizing it. First of all, hypocrisy in the Bible is not just about falling into sin. There is a sense in which we are all hypocrites because we want to follow Jesus but we wrestle with the flesh and we have, uh, we have vices and our virtues aren't strong enough. And so there is a sense in which we are all hypocrites. But I think hypocrisy in the Bible is talking about an extra level of more than just you do wrong things sometimes. You still fall into old tendencies. Hypocrisy is beyond this. It's going to a level of consciously and concertedly dividing up your life so as to worship at the feet of more than one God. There is part of my life that I'm going to lay at the feet of Jesus and he's my God of this part of my life but there's another part of my life that I'm going to consciously divide off and this God can have that part of my life. Thinking through the multiple gods you're worshiping is the hypocrite. And Jesus is saying a couple things about that conscious polytheism. First of all, the God of death will work death throughout every part of your life like leaven through dough. You can't actually quarantine parts of your life. If you're going to give this part of your life to Jesus, but this part of your life to the God of sex, this God will work death through every part of your life. If you give a lot of your life to Jesus, but this part of your life to the God of approval, this God of death will work death through every part of your life like leaven through dough. You can't actually quarantine things. But secondly, everything you do in secret is going to be shouted from the rooftop. You can't get away with it anyways because one day a crucified Jew is going to rip the veil between heaven and earth and everything you did in dark will be seen in the light. Everything you whispered in quiet will be shouted from the rooftops. You can't actually get away with hypocrisy. If you are worshiping at the feet of more than one God, even if you get away with it for 80 years, eventually Eventually, everyone will see. The whole universe will be, you will be exposed to the whole universe. You can't actually get away with worshiping at the feet of more than one God. And this theme of worshiping at the feet of more than one God is something that all of the major characters throughout the Bible say. Here's what Joshua says, Joshua 24, 14 and 15. Remember, so this is after they come into the land, they push back the Canaanites, and now they're about to start living in the land. And this is Joshua's, at the end of his sermon to all the Israelites. He didn't even have PowerPoint and this is how he ends his sermon to all of the Israelites as they're about to start living in the land. Fear the Lord, the Lord, fear the Lord, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. 
Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and serve the Lord. But if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, then put the Lord away. Choose this day whom you will serve. Pick a God. If God is God, then serve him. If the gods beyond the river are God, then serve them. But don't be a hypocrite worshiping part of this God with part of your life and that God with part of your life. Pick a God. Choose this day whom you will serve. Elijah says the same thing in 1 Kings 18. Remember this story? So Elijah's doing a showdown with the prophets of Baal. And this, he isn't yelling at the prophets of Baal. Because in some sense, the prophets of Baal actually have integrity. They have their whole life at the feet of the god Baal. He's yelling at the crowd because the crowd is sometimes worshiping Yahweh, sometimes worshiping Baal. The people with integrity are Yahweh worshipers or Baal worshipers. The hypocrites are the people going back and forth. So this is what Elijah says to the crowd. He came near to the people and he said, how long will you go limping between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Don't limp between multiple gods. Pick a god. Then this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He's writing to the church at Corinth. He says, if the dead are not raised, then eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But if the dead are raised, then do not go on sinning. Some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if it's not true that a crucified Jew is actually the king of the world who walked out of a grave, then eat and drink. What are you doing with any Jesus stuff? It's all a sham. Eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But if Jesus is a crucified Jew who's actually the secret king of the world and he's one day going to make heaven and earth overlap again, then put away the parts of your life that are worshiping other gods. If the resurrection isn't real, put Jesus away. If the resurrection is real, put your other gods away. Pick a god. And this ends with the last, uh, the last time this theme comes is in Revelation 3 when Jesus shows up in a vision to John. So Jesus has ascended into heaven and now he gives this vision to John and John is supposed to write this down and give it to the church at Laodicea. So this is what Jesus has to say to the church at Laodicea. Revelation 3, 15 and 16. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. I would that you were either hot or cold, but because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And as everyone likes to point out, spit uh, could be literally translated vomit. I would that you were either hot for me or cold for the world, but because you're lukewarm and you're limping between gods, I will vomit you out of my mouth. This is, this is the theme in the Bible of pick a God. So here's how I think we can summarize Jesus's Uh, teaching here in Luke 12. One day, a crucified Jewish peasant is going to rip the veil between heaven and earth. He will flood the earth with angels and renew everything. Therefore, stop giving parts of your life to other gods. One day, Jesus is going to make heaven and earth relap over again and all of your hypocrisy will be exposed. So stop giving parts of your life to other gods. Pick a god. Now, let's let's look at modern types of hypocrisy because I am doubtful that many of you secretly worship the gods beyond the river or the God of Baal. If you do, that's a different problem. But most modern forms of hypocrisy aren't giving parts of your life to Jesus and parts of your life to the gods beyond the river. Most of it is these two. And this list could be infinite, but I just picked two modern forms of hypocrisy. One, there are, uh, so here's point two. There are countless ways contemporary Christians can live lives of hypocrisy. However, I think the two most common forms are one, worshiping sex, and two, worshiping approval. Saying, I'm going to give Jesus my life, all of my life, except for this part about sex, I'll give that to a different God. Or this part about approval and other people approving of me, I'll give that to another God. I think if we crush those two forms of hypocrisy, that would crush a lot of hypocrisy in the modern church. So let's take them one at a time. Here's another quote. Everybody, Get ready. Here's another quote. This is a quote I just stole word for word from a sermon that Tim Keller gave. This sermon is called Love and Lust, and it's on YouTube. I recommend everybody look it up and listen to it. And I just, I just listened to it and stole this quote. (laughs) 
God gave us sex as a covenantal good. The world treats sex like a consumer good. Here's the difference. For the Christian, the marriage covenant is what's most important. Within that covenant, sex is a sacrament. I will be naked and self-giving with you physically because I have already pledged to be naked and self-giving to you spiritually for a lifetime. Each time a married couple spend the night together, they renew their vows. Sex is a pleasurable symbol of the satisfying covenant. For the world, however, sex is a consumer good. You are not saying, I love you and will give myself to you. You're saying, I love the way you make me feel. And I want your body, but not your soul. Provide for me a service, but don't stick around. And if another service provider rolls around, I'm out. Even consensual unmarried sex is profoundly selfish. The way the world thinks about sex is it's something about me being fulfilled. The way Christians think about sex is it's a beautiful gift from God that's healing and powerful within the more important thing, which is a covenant that says, I'm for you and you for me. Now, the point of this quote isn't just to say the world gets sex wrong, although that's obviously baked into the quote and true. The point of this quote is to say there is a way to be a modern Christian that says, I will give all of my life to Jesus, except when it comes to sex, I'm going to let the world tell me about sex. When it comes to everything else in my life, Jesus is Lord, but actually I think sex is a consumer good. The world can tell me the world, the world will tell me what sex is. It's a consumer thing. I don't, have to, I don't have to nuzzle it within a covenant. I can just do it to make me feel good. And it's profoundly selfish. And there's nothing more selfish than pornography. There's not even another person around. It's just about your own pleasure. And so saying, I will give all of my life to Jesus, but the world can tell me how sex works is a modern form of hypocrisy. And I think Jesus and I think Joshua and Elijah and Paul and Tim Keller would say, pick a God. If Jesus is God, then let him tell you how sex works. If the world is God, then stop with all of the Jesus stuff. But don't follow Jesus except for this one area where you let the world tell you what's going on. I think that's one modern form of hypocrisy. Here's the second one, is approval. And here's, here's another quote. This is Ernest Becker. Um, Ernest Becker wrote a book, The Denial of Death, which won the Pulitzer Prize in the 70s, 1974 or so. And I have not read The Denial of Death. I just found this quote and I really liked it. Um, but, pro tip, if you quote Ernest Becker, people will think you're really smart. So, just don't tell them you haven't read the book. Um, but this is a quote from Ernest Becker, The Denial of Death. He was a secularist, a, an atheist. This is an atheist talking about the God of approval. And it sounds very Christian, but he's uh, thoroughly secular. He says this, We see how modern people have put themselves in an impossible position. Modern secular people still need to feel like their lives matter. They still need to feel like there's some higher meaning. But if there's no longer any God, how are we supposed to do this? One of the first solutions which occurred to the modern person is what I call the romantic solution. The glorification which we need in our innermost being, we look to get from our love partner. The lover becomes the way to fulfill one's very life. The worth and meaning you want comes from the loved one. The romantic solution may be ingenious and it may be creative, but it is a lie that must fail. What is it we want when we elevate the love partner to the position of God? We want redemption. We want to be rid of our faults. We want to be rid of our feeling of nothingness. That's why we fall in love. We expect them to make us good, to make us real. Needless to say, human beings cannot do this. This is a secular person saying, if we get rid of God, we're going to need something else to give us approval and that will satisfy me. If I find someone who I fall in love with and they call me beautiful, that will satisfy my soul. 
And you can, you can substitute out, out here romance for any other people group. If I find friends who give me approval, that's when I'll be okay. If I find my children who give me approval, there can be parents who need approval from their children to be okay. Or you can be a Christian who goes to church, but you don't look for approval from God. You look for, appro for approval from other Christians. And if I get approval from these other people groups, romance or friends or church or kids, that's what will make me okay in the end. I think there's a, the, the, one of the deepest ways to be a hypocrite in the contemporary church isn't giving part of your life to the gods beyond the river. It's giving part of your life to approval. And if I get approval from this person, then I'll be fulfilled. What it means to, not, to be an integrated person, to not be a hypocrite, is to say I give the, full of, the fullness of my life to Jesus. Even whatever he says about sex, even his approval is what satisfies me. Now, here we go. Part three, medicines for hypocrisy. I think at this point in the sermon, if we say pick a god, Christians need to just be uh, honest about the fact that there is some percentage of the American church which will say, yeah, you're right, and I pick the world. Jesus didn't rise from the dead. I pick the gods beyond the river. Their sex and their approval is going to satisfy me. And actually, Christians should be kind of okay with the fact that at least they're being honest. What we want is integrated secularists, not hypocritical Christians. Pick a god, and some percentage of people are going to pick the god of this world. But for the rest of us who want to say, no, I want Jesus to be my God. I really do believe that a crucified Jew is going to have heaven and earth overlap and I hate my hypocrisy and I want to give the fullness of my life to him. How now do we uh, find some medicines for that hypocrisy? So for the people who say, yes, I want to pick a God and I'm picking Jesus, what are our medicines? First of all, there is the medicine of confession. James 5.16 says, confess your sins to one another. Um, I think the spiritual practice of confession is is extremely undervalued and it's impossible to overestimate its importance. Saying to other people, this is a part of my life that I am afraid I am not giving to Jesus, just bringing that out into the light, just talking about it, automatically goes a long way to killing it. Sin grows in the dark. Sin grows in the quiet. Just talking to other people about it is already over half the battle in killing hypocrisy. Um, confession, I've heard, uh, maybe you've heard, it's the kind of pain you get from a massage. It's the kind of pain you get when you visit Elvis's house. It kind of hurts and it might be kind of like awkward and it pulls your muscles in hard ways, but at the end, you always feel more alive and bigger and can stand up straight. It does hurt, but it's the kind of pain that brings about a fuller life. Um, confession is also not just walking up to an elder and like with your tail between your legs saying, I did a bad thing. There, there is an important part of confessing your sins to religious leaders. But confession is more something the community does amongst each, one another. Saying, this is a part of my life that I am afraid I am giving to another God. I need you to talk with me in the open regularly about this part of my life. That is what I mean by confession, not just saying, sorry, I did something bad. Although there is a place for that also. A second medicine for hypocrisy is community. Hem, uh, Hebrews 10, 25, do not forsake meeting together. Be all the more eager about it as you see the day approaching. Community is not just showing up to a building and hearing someone else give you a message or hearing someone else sing songs at you. Um, I've used this illustration before. That would make us as much of a community as all of the people who happen to go to the same movie theater at the same time. When I went to go see Infinity Wars, it was a f packed room and we were all watching the same show and we all loved it and were cheering, but we're not a community. We're just people who happen to show up at the same time and watch the same movie and kind of liked it. A community is people who are emotionally, spiritually, over time, invested in one another's lives. If you are not in that kind of community, you will, by default, naturally, unavoidably, grow imbalanced. You will become like uh, 
Von Harnack or like Billy Sunday because you, by nature, are not balanced. All of us by nature. It doesn't matter how many books you read. It doesn't matter how many degrees you get. You, by nature, are imbalanced. And you need to be in community with a bunch of other imbalanced people under the authority of the Spirit to, to uh, straighten yourself out. If you are by yourself, it doesn't matter how smart you are, you are going to be imbalanced and it's unchecked. The only way to live an integrated life and stay that way is to, over time, be a part of the kind of community where you're actually caring about each other, not just seeing the Marvel movie at the same time. And then medicine three, the final one is the cross. Three points, all that begin with the same letter. That's a lot of church points for me. Thanks. Very good. Three, the cross. Um, when we look at the cross, we need to see not just that Jesus is our sacrifice who died in our place, but the cross is also the, the pinnacle example of integrity. It is Jesus saying, I am going to give the fullness of my life to the will of the Father. Even if that means they're going to strip me naked and beat me, I'm giving the fullness of my life to the Father. There's no part of my life that I'm going to give to the God of my own self-preservation. I'm going to give the fullness of my life to the Father, even if it means they nail me to a cross, even if it means I suffer the wrath of God on behalf of the people who hate me. I am going to lay the fullness of my life before God, even if it hurts. And so we need to look at the cross to see it not only as our sacrifice which pays for our sins, but the perfect example of the life we want to lead. And when this picture melts your heart, when the cross melts your heart and saying, this is what it looks like to be a true human who is completely giving yourself to one God, then the God of sex and the God of approval will by default look less appealing. When this picture captures your heart, you can no longer say, you know what, the sex, the, the sex of the world looks really good or the approval of a boyfriend looks really good. It just naturally fades in light of the beauty of the cross. So we, I pray that we have the cross not just be a thing we understand it pays for our sins, but it's the beautiful picture of what it looks like to dedicate the fullness of your life to one God. Okay, so worship team can come on up. I will end by praying. Father, thank you for the gift of your son, your son who lived on our behalf, who died on our behalf, who lived his entire life in the spirit on our behalf. And I pray that you, you come and you make us not, uh, not just people who understand the effectiveness of the cross, but people who are moved by the example of the cross. That we become people who, who thoroughly pick a God, even if that means pain, even if that means uncomfortability, even if that means saying no to parts of our flesh, we are decided for you rather than limping between multiple gods. And we know this type of integrity only comes when the Spirit changes our hearts. So Spirit, please come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.